This is week number 26 in our study of the book of Daniel, and uh, some of you may be new and haven't been here for the full 25 weeks, so today's format's going to be a little different. I'm going to try and, um, we're in chapter 7, verse 14 is where we left off, but that's not where we're going to start today. We're going to try and go all the way back to chapter 1, verse 1, and give you an overview of where we've come through thus far. So today is going to be kind of like a 10,000-foot overview of the first uh, six and a half chapters of Daniel. And we'll uh, certainly, as always, if you desire to say something, just kind of let me know, and I'll give you the floor. We do have two mics here trying to record all of your, your comments, which are always more important than mine. And uh, so we'll, we'll try and have a, a good recording for all of those who listen during the week um, because there are a significant number of those. So this morning we're just going to um, kind of just try and review and get our juices flowing back in the book of Daniel. It's been eight weeks since we last were together. Today marks eight weeks. Um, hopefully you've had a time of relaxation, not quite as busy as Sunday. Uh, I know for me it's... Uh, has always went by very quickly. So um, just thinking about the book of Daniel, you know, the, the stories that come to mind most often for people are stories of Daniel in the lion's den or Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace, those types of stories. And while we've walked through those in detail, those don't really give us what the major theme of Daniel is. They give us some important points, and we'll review those again this morning, but that's not what the book of Daniel is all about. You remember that Daniel gave us his theme um, on on the night when he asked God to show him the dream of Nebuchadnezzar and to give him the interpretation. Daniel, after God had done that in response to God being gracious to him, over in chapter 2, and beginning in verse 20, gives us the theme of the book of Daniel. So this is what Daniel was all about. After God had shown him this dream of Nebuchadnezzar, Daniel said, Let the name of God be blessed forever and ever, for wisdom and power belong to him. And it is he who changes the times and the epochs. He removes kings and establishes kings. He gives wisdom to wise men and knowledge to the men of understanding. And in those words, Daniel gives us what the theme of this book is all about. And that is that it's God who sets the times and the epochs. It's God who establishes kings and who removes kings. And all through this book, Daniel is telling us about the kings that are and that will be, and those who will be removed. Matter of fact, Daniel even lives through one of those changes as, he, um, as he'll cover in this book. So this is the theme of Daniel, is that God has a plan for all of his creation, and that he's busy at work working that plan. And nothing in history has caught him by surprise, Nothing in the future has caught him by surprise. Nothing about our current circumstances in the world today have caught him by surprise. And he has an overall global plan that he is working, and he will work it exactly as he pleases. Unlike the deist who would say, God just 
created all that there is, wound it up, and now it's left to unwind. That is not at all what is happening. That's not what we believe. It's not what we teach. It's not what Daniel teaches. God has a definite, precise, worked out plan for all of creation. And in the book of Daniel, he gives that overall plan from the time of Nebuchadnezzar forward to the end of the age. It's all laid out in the book of Daniel. And, you know, we would like to push against some of those things and say that we're more important than God's plan than maybe what the book of Daniel says. It doesn't really matter because God's at work working his plan. He is sovereign. He worked it exactly during Daniel's age as he desired to, and he will continue to do that. He is doing that today. And so that's the theme of the book of Daniel. That's the perspective that we want to bring as we look at this book, as we look at the prophecies that are given in this book, as we look at the detail that Daniel gives us. It's in that perspective that we need to take it. Okay, so because as we get into some, you know, it's, I think it's really easy to think, okay, the nation of Israel and God had a plan for them and they were disobedient, so he destroyed them and he worked all these things according to his will in the ancient day. But when you fast forward to today's time and you look at all the nations that exist and all the superpowers and all the evil regimes that are in power today and the crazy things that are going on on the planet, you go, yeah, I'm just not quite as sure as I am concerning the ancient world. Well, don't be fooled. There's no difference between today and what we read that happened in the ancient world. God was in control then. He's in control now. And this is working out precisely as he planned for it to and that he is orchestrating it. There's nothing in the world today that God doesn't know or didn't know was going to exist. All the powers that be, those both good and bad, are established by God. He's the one who set them in power. He's the one who can remove them regardless of what men say and think they can do. There's no doubt that men act on their own volition. We would never deny that. But God uses those actions of men to accomplish his purposes. And as we go through all of this, you'll see in in multiple occasions that God even puts things in people's minds so that they will act in certain ways. And those ways aren't always good. Those ways are sometimes evil. And God is the one who can put things into their minds and turn their hearts and cause them to take actions. And he does. He has been, he is today, and he always will be. So all of this is working exactly according to God's plan. And that's what Daniel believed. That's why he gave praise to God for that he's the one that establishes these powers. And Daniel saw that in his own life. Okay, so as we think about and try and go back and review, starting at the beginning of Daniel, you remember Daniel was set the very beginning in the time of 605 B.C. It's the time when Babylon is coming to power in the land of um, the Jews in Jerusalem. In 605 B.C., the Babylonians invaded. Matter of fact, Nebuchadnezzar, who was soon to be the king within a matter of months because his father would die, he's the one who led the invasion against Jerusalem. And we see Daniel being taken as a captive in that first raid. Daniel probably 
a very young teenager. And so he's taken with all of his contemporaries over to the land of Babylon really to be brainwashed, to be taught in training for three years and then to be put into service somehow in the government to serve their king and to control the land. Okay, now to put this in context of history, you remember that David, the second king of of Israel, lived about 1000 B.C., followed by his son Solomon, who died in 931 B.C. So we're about 300 years removed from Solomon, the last uh, king that controlled all of the land of Israel. After Solomon died, split into two kingdoms. You had the northern kingdom, you had the southern kingdom. The northern kingdom lasted for about 200 years. In 731 B.C., they were taken captive by the Assyrians. So after simply 200 years, younger than our nation is, 10 of the 12 tribes are gone, never to return, dispersed into other lands and never reestablish a northern kingdom. So you've got just the tribes of uh, Judah and Benjamin left and some Levites left down in the Jerusalem area, the land called Judah. They last for about another 110 or 15 years beyond the northern kingdom. But just like the northern kingdom, who had only bad kings, they had many bad kings. And God makes it explicitly clear in the books of Second Kings and Second Chronicles. You can go there and you can see the details of why God allowed the northern kingdom to be captured by the Assyrians and then the southern kingdom to be captured by the Babylonians. It was judgment clear and simple they god was judging them for following evil kings and they did some horrendous things and you can read about that in full color in kings and we reviewed a good bit of that so that gets us to 605 when daniel along with all his contemporaries are captured and taken to the land of babylon put in training for three years and in chapter one we saw a couple of miracles happen One was that, first of all, Daniel went and asked permission to not have to eat the king's food. You remember this? And that he could only eat vegetables. And his three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, as their names were changed to be, joined him in that. And so the four of them requested not to have to eat the king's food, but to eat vegetables. And God miraculously worked in their lives such that just eating vegetables, they looked better than all the guys who were eating the king's food. That would not normally happen. Lack of protein, lack of nourishment, but God miraculously worked in their lives. He did another thing. During those three years, these four guys excelled better than any of the other men who were there with them. And so at the end of the, the three years, Daniel writes that they were considered to be 10 times better than anybody else in judgment, in decision-making, in wisdom. So highly, highly proclaimed above anybody else such that Daniel was put in the king's personal service, meaning his right-hand man, Daniel became. And the other three were given the right to rule over the Babylonian province. That's the the major province of the empire of Babylon. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were the three rulers of that province. Daniel 
the privileged position to be at, at Nebuchadnezzar's right hand for the entire reign of Nebuchadnezzar. I mean, he gets there only three years after Nebuchadnezzar has been established as king, and he stays there until Nebuchadnezzar goes away. And Daniel, you remember, I believe, that in the time when Nebuchadnezzar could not rule because of God's judgment in his life, I believe Daniel ruled the whole kingdom, the whole empire of Babylon. He's the one who kept the order while the king was out. And so in chapter 1, we have these couple of miracles that happen, and we end the chapter with Daniel literally being the right-hand man of Nebuchadnezzar. Then you get into chapter 2, and in chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar has a dream. You'll remember this dream. What's the dream about? A great statue, right? And this statue is made of multiple materials. It has a head of gold. It has a chest and arms of silver. It has a belly and thighs of bronze. And then it has legs of iron and feet that are made of iron and clay mixed together, which don't mix. And so they're, they're spoken of as being um, parts of them being brittle, which would be the clay part because it could easily be crushed. And so Nebuchadnezzar had this dream, and then he forgot the dream. He, know, he knew he had it, and it had troubled him, but he doesn't remember his own dream. So he calls all his wise men together, and he says, I need you, first of all, to tell me what my dream was, because I don't remember it. And then I need you to tell me its interpretation, because it is greatly disturbing me. And you remember, under threat of death, he brought all these men together, and none of them, of course, could answer the king's request because no one knew what he had dreamed. And so ultimately, Daniel comes on the scene and goes to Nebuchadnezzar and requests a day to be able to understand the dream and to bring him back the interpretation. And what Daniel does, he goes to his three friends and he says, if you would please with me pray all night long that God would show us show me this dream so I could give it to Nebuchadnezzar so at least the four of us won't be killed even if all the others are. And you remember this is Nebuchadnezzar's favorite way um, to kill people, right? Is to make their houses rubbish heaps also, meaning I'll kill your family also and I'll burn your house down if you can't answer me. And so Daniel prays to God And that's where we get the theme of Daniel from. God answers Daniel's prayer, shows him not only the dream, but what the interpretation of the dream is. And so he comes back and he he goes into the court because you remember literally the guy who was assigned to him to watch over him is running with him to take him to Nebuchadnezzar before Nebuchadnezzar does anything rash. And Daniel gives him the explanation of this dream. The first part, the head of gold, represents Nebuchadnezzar in the kingdom of Babylon. And so um, they're the head of gold. And then he simply does not name any names. He simply says, after you, there will be another kingdom that is the silver of the chest and the arms, but it will be inferior to the Babylonian kingdom. Then he rapidly says there will be another kingdom, which is the belly of Um, bronze and the thighs of bronze and then there ultimately will be a fourth kingdom and this is the kingdom where he gives more detail 
in Nebuchadnezzar's dream than he gives about any of the other. He says that there will be um, a kingdom that will have will be strong and mighty and have teeth of iron and that it will crush all of the other empires. But yet, it will be brittle. Parts of it will be brittle because it has clay mixed with iron. So it will be a divided kingdom, he says, literally a divided kingdom, and that part of it will not be sustained. It will be crushed because it's brittle. And so we are left wondering, what are these kingdoms? And we went through a lot of discussion, a lot of talk, and certainly in the basis of seven chapters, you can make these determinations that Babylon is the, king, is the kingdom of the gold head and that Medo-Persia is the kingdom of the silver of the chest and two arms and that the Greeks are the bronze of the belly and the thighs. And then who is the iron kingdom? And I believe this is open for debate. But I will tell you and I'll concede that since the Reformation, almost universally, the evangelical church has taught that the, the kingdom of iron is the European kingdom. It's Rome and then all the, pro, all the provinces around Rome. And because we later see this kingdom reappear and is there at the end of the age, meaning at the end when Christ comes again, then that means that in today's society, we have to believe that there's going to be a resurrection of the European kingdom. Now, I've told you, I'm not bashful about it. I don't ascribe to that particular interpretation. I don't believe that the kingdom in Nebuchadnezzar, or that followed after Nebuchadnezzar, it followed after the bronze, that is the iron, is Rome. I don't believe it is. I know that shocks you. And I don't believe they'll be resurrected at the end of the age. I don't believe that's who fights against Jesus Christ. I don't believe that's where the Antichrist comes from. We'll talk much more about that, right? Not today, but as we go forward. And matter of fact, what I've been doing over the last eight weeks is studying so that after we finish Daniel, that we can go to the prophets and out of the prophets, even out of the book of Genesis, I will show you who I believe the Iron Kingdom is and where they come from, who they've been through history, and what happens at the end of history. That's what I've been studying for the last eight weeks. So I've been out of the book of Daniel in all the other books trying to um, get a cohesive and um, biblical perspective that I can present to you, and then you can make your decisions um, about who you believe it is. Because, you know, no one has this all figured out, okay? There are many men who write like they have it figured out and who are very dogmatic in their view. I won't do that. I'll I'll let you believe that it's Rome and, and not have any problem with you as long as you let me believe that it's not Rome and have no problem with me, okay? Because nobody has this all figured out. No one has a special key or a special code and has uh, looked at the numbers in Scripture and they have it absolutely all figured. All those crazy things that men say, nobody has it figured out. Okay, so it won't be exactly like anybody thinks. But I think there's good biblical evidence 
of why it's not the Roman it's not the Romans who are this iron kingdom. But we'll go with that for now, okay? What we do know is that there is a fourth kingdom and they are there at the end of the age. That we know for sure. So your eschatology, however you parse it, has to be able to accept that. And you'll notice that Daniel only names four specific kingdoms in the statue in chapter 2. You could make the argument that there's a fifth, which would be the iron mixed with clay. You could even make the argument that there's a sixth kingdom, which is just the toes of the feet. Okay? Now, personally, I don't think that you can do that biblically, but there certainly are arguments out there to be able to do that, at least to make five kingdoms. So we'll talk about that as we go forward, because what happens in Daniel is that Nebuchadnezzar gets this big view, and then there are additional views that give us more detail that are given to Daniel that explain and give more revelation than was given to Nebuchadnezzar. What Nebuchadnezzar knew is that he was the head of gold, so he was all puffed up about that, but that his kingdom would not endure forever. He was told that you're going to be done away with in due time. Okay, so that's the, the, there's a, there is a fifth kingdom in the um, vision that Nebuchadnezzar saw. And what is that, what is that kingdom? The eternal kingdom, the rock that was cut without human hands, right? That in that vision comes and pulverizes all of the other materials such that they're made chaff and the wind blows them away, meaning they don't exist anymore. There's no resemblance of them. And so that is the, and, and Daniel says this to Nebuchadnezzar, that is the kingdom that will be given to no future people that endures forever. So that kingdom, which is clearly a supernatural kingdom because it's made without human hands, will endure forever. So that's the fifth kingdom that Daniel specifically names. Okay, so then we go to chapter 3, and Daniel takes a turn, and this is the story about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego being thrown into the fiery furnace. And you'll remember, they were thrown into the fiery furnace because they would not bow down to an image that Nebuchadnezzar had made. Now, I believe Nebuchadnezzar made this image um, after 586 B.C., because what happens in 586 B.C.? Yeah, the temple that Solomon built with the riches of King David is burned and ransacked and destroyed. Okay, not broken all the way down to the ground, but certainly destroyed. And so the Babylonians did that. The Babylonians are initially raided in 605. And then they had at least two, probably three additional raids where they slaughtered people and carried more people from Jerusalem back to the land of Babylon. They set up vassal kings multiple times, and those vassal kings ultimately rebelled against Nebuchadnezzar and were done away with. And so ultimately in 586, he's had enough, and they destroy, they kill the people and destroy the temple. I I believe that God preserved the artifacts of the temple by giving them to the Babylonians so they could take them away to their homeland. And that's how the utensils 
were preserved and not burned with the temple. Okay, so after he does that, Nebuchadnezzar now believes that even the God of Daniel is dead because he's destroyed his temple. And so he builds an image and he brings all the leaders of all the provinces of Babylon together. Now, this would be thousands of people from thousands of lands that he would bring them all together, all the leaders. And the purpose is so they'll worship the image and give allegiance to Nebuchadnezzar. He's trying to unite these diverse people. But God has a different plan in mind. And so Nebuchadnezzar says, if you don't bow down, then you'll be thrown into the fiery furnace. And of course, the three friends of Daniel, Daniel is not on the scene anywhere in chapter 3, don't know where he is, but he's not one of the guys who has to come together. But his three friends do because they are the princes of the province of Babylon. So they're there with all the other guys. And when he says bow down, everybody does, except for the conspicuous three Jews who don't bow down. And so he gives them a second chance, very fair, and says, listen, I know you didn't quite understand. I'll I'll give you a second chance. And they ultimately answer, we don't need to even think about this because our God is able to save us. But even if he doesn't save us, then we still will be victorious. And so these men, knowing they were going to be thrown into the furnace, showed great faith that God could save them but maybe wouldn't save them. But that was okay with them because they were not going to worship a foreign god. Now, these are the, the, those three, along with Daniel, are the only four out of all the guys that were brought from Jerusalem to Babylon that we know about that refused to follow pagan gods that were not brainwashed, that didn't turn their ways and give their allegiance to the nation of Babylon, who didn't speak the language that they were speaking, who, who did not yield to the multiple God theory. Only these four. And so these three guys are tied together. And you remember it says that they heated the furnace seven times more than it normally would be heated. Now that's just a figure of speech. Don't know exactly the temperature, but it was hot enough that the guys who threw them into the furnace were killed by the heat. So the men who were assigned to carry them up and drop them into the furnace died of heat exhaustion or of actual flames burning them. But the three that were thrown into the furnace, you remember what happened. Nebuchadnezzar goes over to look at them burn, and they're free, they're untied, and they're walking around, and with them is a fourth one who has looks like a son of the gods. Now, don't know exactly what that means, right? Could be Jesus Christ pre-incarnate. Could just be an angel in there with them. Don't know exactly, but the men were unharmed. So in such a ridiculous fashion, the Nebuchadnezzar calls out to them to come out of the furnace, and they hear him, and they obey him. And as they walk out, the fourth man disappears. And so you remember, these guys don't even smell like smoke. Not even their hairs are singed. There's no effect of the fire on them at all. So God miraculously preserved these three men so that everybody in the empire of Babylon would know that there was a God who was superior to Nebuchadnezzar and Nebuchadnezzar's image. So Nebuchadnezzar intended to bring all these people together and unite them, giving allegiance to him 
and to his image. God turned the tables, and as all those men went back to their provinces, what were they talking about? The God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So instead of taking back the great image of Nebuchadnezzar, they all took back to their homelands the thought of this great God who saved Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So God changes, you see, in an instant, he accomplishes his purposes and defeats Nebuchadnezzar's. So again, the evidence to Nebuchadnezzar through the, the four being supreme to all the others, through their great wisdom, through Daniel interpreting his dream, through this fiery ordeal, God has multiple times give Nebuch- given Nebuchadnezzar evidence that he is the great supreme God and that he's sovereign and in control of all that there is. So Nebuchadnezzar has full evidence of all of these things. Nothing um, should be surprising to him that God does. Now, chapter 4, to his credit, is a proclamation by Nebuchadnezzar to all the peoples in all the lands. This is a worldwide proclamation. And almost every verse of chapter 4 is a proclamation made by Nebuchadnezzar. It's not Daniel who's making this proclamation. It's not anybody else. Daniel is quoting Nebuchadnezzar. And what Nebuchadnezzar does in that proclamation, he tells the story of a vision that he had and then the fulfillment of that vision. But it's Nebuchadnezzar giving this, not Daniel. But you remember he he does quote Daniel multiple times because Nebuchadnezzar... One night when he was up on his rooftop was especially arrogant. And he was looking out over all of Babylon and saying, what a great job I've done. Look at this kingdom that I've built. And because he was so arrogant, that night God gave him a vision. And it was a vision of a great tree that spread and its shade covered all of the world. But that tree, you remember, was chopped down. And as it was chopped down, the person that that tree represented was given the mind of an animal. And for seven periods of time, he acted like an animal. He grew, um, his hair grew such that it looked like eagle's wings mashed down. And that his fingernails and his toenails grew so long that they looked like bird's claws. And Nebuchadnezzar roamed with the dew falling on his back and ate grass beside all the other cattle for seven periods of time. He was given the mind of an animal. And then in God's good time, after seven periods of time, God gave him his mind back, gave him his rational mind back, and he recognized his great arrogance and that he needed to be humble. And so this chapter 4 is Nebuchadnezzar telling that story which would shame himself, which would be really extraordinary for a king to do, especially the king that controlled the greatest empire on the planet. And yet he does, and he makes this proclamation to all the people because he recognizes through his insanity and then his return to sanity that God indeed can do whatever he wants to do that he is the everlasting God. And at the end of chapter 4, there's this interesting statement by 
Nebuchadnezzar. And it leaves us asking a couple of questions. At the end of chapter 4, you can see in 34, he says, but the, at the end of that period, meaning after his sanity came back to him, and Daniel had kept the kingdom under control during his insane period, and then gave it back to Nebuchadnezzar when he returned. He says, But at the end of that period, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven, and my reason returned to me, and blessed the Most High, and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, but he does according to his will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And no one can ward off his hand or can say, what have you done? Nebuchadnezzar got it. He understood the theme of the book, right? He understands that God is supreme and he can do whatever he well desires and that he does. And no one can thwart his purposes or what he desires to do. Nebuchadnezzar understood it. So we're left asking the question, was Nebuchadnezzar a converted man? And some say yes, and some say no. And so, like with all people, we can't be dogmatic, right? We don't know. He gives evidence here with his words that he probably is a believer. But the rest of his life, not so much. And we don't know anything else about Nebuchadnezzar out of the book of Daniel because chapter 5 And forward, Nebuchadnezzar is not there. Matter of fact, chapter 5 is all about uh, one of his descendants named Belshazzar. Not to be confused with Daniel's name, who was changed to Belteshazzar. So, okay, very similar. Just a couple of letters different. But this is Belshazzar, one of the descendants, not the direct son of Nebuchadnezzar, even though he's called the son of Nebuchadnezzar. He's one of his descendants probably two or three generations later. Belshazzar is the last king of the Babylonian Empire, and that's what chapter 5 is all about. Belshazzar and all his friends are having a drunken party. They're all stoned, have no idea what's going on. And in that stupor, they decide that they'll use the vessels that came out of the Jerusalem temple that they took when they raided the temple that Solomon built, and they'll drink their wine from those vessels. And so they begin to do so. And at that point, God has had enough. And so a hand appears out of nowhere and begins to write on the wall. This is the writing on the wall that you have heard the story about, right? And it writes an inscription that no one can read. No one understands what it means. And so we go through this crazy thing that you go through multiple times in Daniel that everybody tries to interpret it. Nobody can. And so ultimately they ask Daniel to come and interpret it. And Daniel does. And he says, this inscription says three things. First of all, that... um, I know what the second and third ones are. I'm trying to remember what the first one is. That's the second one. That's it. That your day, that the days of your kingdom have been numbered, meaning God had set a point for the beginning and for the end of this kingdom, and those days are up. And then he says, Belshazzar, you have been weighed on the scales, and you've been found deficient, meaning 
You think you're good, but you're not. And then he says, and your kingdom has been divided. And so what we know happened is because he interpreted the dream, Daniel's given a purple robe and a big ring on his finger and is elevated again back to prominence as the best man in the nation of of Babylon. And that very night, the Medo-Persians come in and kill Belshazzar and the kingdom is done and over with. And so chapter 5 fast forwards from Nebuchadnezzar in the middle of his reign all the way to the end of the Babylonian kingdom. And so now Daniel has lived through the kingdom of the golden head and sees installed the kingdom of the silver chest and arms. And it's the Medo-Persians. And because maybe he had a purple robe on, maybe his reputation had spread before him, a man named Darius is set up as the king of the Babylonian area of the Medo-Persian kingdom. And Daniel once again has made his right-hand man. So Daniel elevated back to the position that he once had. But as we said, Daniel at this point is better than 80 years young, right? 80 years young. So he is, he is not a youngster anymore. He's lived through 70 years of Babylonian captivity, coming out as probably a 12-year-old, 13-year-old, something like that. So he's in his, well into his 80s. Okay, and the Medo-Persian kingdom comes in. Now, can't ever remember this date. The Medo-Persians um, took over um, from the Babylonians. I'm trying to remember the year. October 12, There you go. Not the year, the very day, right? And this is chronicled pretty well in history, but there's a little bit of debate. But it was 539. Some would put it at 538, depending on which calendar you use. But you can see that from 605 to 538, 37, something like that, that there's this transition period where Darius is installed. And ultimately, Daniel will recognize that the prophecy was for 70 years of captivity and that they will be released. So we haven't gotten there yet. So the Medo-Persians come in and establish their kingdom. And chapter 6 is all about some evil men tricking King Darius. And he made this proclamation, which he shouldn't have made, that anybody who worshipped any god other than him for a period of 30 days would be thrown into the lion's den. And of course, Daniel, just like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in chapter 3, Chapter 6 is the parallel of Daniel to chapter 3, where these men were great in their faith, would not be denied their worship of the one true God, and so Daniel continued, as was his practice, to worship God and pray three times a day. And so because of that, Darius had a great love for Daniel, and yet he could not deny his own word, so he threw Daniel into the lion's den. And you remember that night... God sent an angel and shut the lion's mouth. Now, I can just imagine that you have this majestic angel coming into the lion's den and all the lions cowering in the corner. So I don't think he literally shut their mouths, but 
It wasn't Daniel who was scared. It was the lions who were scared that night. And so um, Darius runs that next morning and calls out to Daniel. And Daniel says, I'm fine. And so Darius does the right thing. He has Daniel lifted out of the lion's den. And all those guys who conspired against Daniel and their wives and their children are all thrown into the lion's den. And and the the word reads that they were killed even before they got to the bottom of the lion's den. So those guys are annihilated and eaten by the lions. Daniel is absolutely fine. And so that's the, the other underlying theme of Daniel is this great faith of these men who loved God and God responding to that faith with supernatural protection and blessings on their lives. And so chapter 3, chapter 6 are parallel chapters. Then we get to chapter 7. Chapter 7, I believe, is parallel to chapter 2. Chapter 2, you remember, was the vision by Nebuchadnezzar of this great statue in the kingdoms that would come. Chapter 7 is a vision given to Daniel. And it's given to Daniel in the first year of Belshazzar. So it's out of sequence chronologically. Everything has been chronological up until through the first six chapters. Chapter 7 goes all the way back to the first year of Belshazzar which is approximately 15 years before the action in chapter um, 5, where Belshazzar is killed. Okay, so chapter 7 rewinds back to this vision that Daniel had about 15 years before the Medo-Persians arrived. And this vision, I believe, is parallel to that that happens in chapter 2 because what Daniel sees is that the winds have stirred up the great sea and out of this sea come four beasts. The first one is a lion with wings on his back. The second is a bear that's humped up on one side. The third is um, a leopard that has four wings on his back, the wings of eagle, of birds, and has four heads. And then the fourth one is not described, cannot be described as an animal because it is horrifying, it is terrifying, it is, as with chapter 2, it's given more detail because it has uh, teeth of iron, and it crushes all the others. It has feet that if it doesn't crush you with its, iron, with its iron teeth, it will stomp you and annihilate you. And so this is the, the, the fourth terrifying beast. And then we're given more detail in this prophecy given to Daniel. First of all, that the leopard had four heads. And then about this beast, that this terrible fourth beast has ten horns. And then ultimately, as Daniel contemplates the horns, there's an 11th horn that appears. And that horn grabs three of the other horns and pulls them out by the roots and destroys them. And this 11th horn is spoken of of having the eyes of a man and a mouth that is boastful. So this is a human being that this 11th horn represents. I believe all the horns represent 
human leaders, but this one specifically, Daniel says, is a man. He has the eyes of a man, and he has a mouth that is boastful like a man. And then on this scene of these beasts, immediately follows them, he says that thrones were set up in the heavens, and that the Ancient of Days is seated on his throne, and there's fire all about this throne, and he says he sits down, and the court is set, and the books are opened. This is the judgment. In, in verse 14, we have some very specific language that tells us what this scene is. It says that the Son of Man is presented to the Ancient of Days, and that the Ancient of Days gives him a dominion and a kingdom that will endure forever. Well, thinking of our theme back in chapter 2, who is the one who sets and establishes kings and removes kings? It's God. So the Ancient of Days is God the Father because he is giving a kingdom to the Son of Man. Now, we talked about this phrase, Son of Man. I mean, we immediately say, well, that's Jesus Christ, right? Well, not in the Old Testament, it's not. Because you remember, this, this term, Son of Man, is used 107 times in the Old Testament. Ezekiel uses it 93 times. Every time Ezekiel uses it, it refers to himself, not to God, not to Jesus Christ. Every time Daniel uses it, he'll use it one more time over in chapter 8 and verse 14, it talks about Daniel. So that's 94 times. If you take the other 13 times that it occurs, 12 of them, it's explicitly clear out of the context of the verse that it's talking about people human beings, normal, ordinary people like Daniel and Ezekiel and regular people like you and me. Because what is man that God would take mind of him or the son of man, right? Talking about us, just normal people. But this one time in the Old Testament, in this verse, chapter 7 and verse, what is it, 14, 13? where it talks about the Son of Man, this refers to Jesus Christ. And if you think about it, what was Jesus' favorite name for himself? Son of Man, right? The only place in the Old Testament that Jesus could have pulled that title from is this verse, chapter 7, verse 13. No other place does it reference him or anybody that's supernatural, only this one phrase. So there are people today who say that Daniel did not write the book of Daniel. It was written by a forger late in the 2nd century B.C. And that Daniel, the historical character in Babylon, did not write this book in the 6th century B.C. And I say, well, Jesus Christ believed that he did, right? Because he used the title that Daniel gives him, and only Daniel... And only this verse in the Old Testament is what Jesus Christ pulls as his favorite name for himself. Not only that, Jesus Christ refers to Daniel in chapter 24 of Matthew when he's given the eschatology of the end of the days. So Jesus believed that Daniel was not a forger 
and that it wasn't written after the history happened and that it was accurate and should be included in the canon. To me, that's the greatest argument of why this book is literally true and the, the prophecies are literal and they were fulfilled, some of them, and the ones that haven't been fulfilled will be fulfilled. <clears throat> because Jesus Christ believed that was true. So we should believe that's true and we should accept these prophecies as what's going to happen in the world. So that gets us up to where we're at with the interpretation. Now, <clears throat> we have the vision of Daniel on the table. Okay? It's amazing how explicitly the bystander explains this vision to Daniel. So that's where we'll pick up next week and, and parallel this vision of Daniel in chapter 7 to the vision of Nebuchadnezzar, the dream of Nebuchadnezzar, in chapter 2. And we'll walk through it in great detail because at this point, from here forward, it's just Daniel. There are no other people involved in the visions or in the interpretations. And so from this point forward, it becomes more important and more detail is given. And so we need to walk through the detail and understand what it means. So that's an overview. You who haven't been here, hopefully that catches you up a little bit. If you have a specific topic in there, specific chapter and verse that you have questions about, I encourage you to go back to the first 25 lessons. You go online and it gives the lesson and the verses. And you'll find in that lesson what we discussed about those verses. But from this point forward, we'll go back to normal format, right? You'll do most of the talking. I'll do all the listening.